Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Hello, and welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Mark Mildred, private practice surgeon at Slocum Center for Orthopedics in Eugene, Oregon, where it has been hotter than a new cement mantle around a polished stem lately. I have no conflicts of interest with any authors of the studies or devices discussed. My name is Chad Kruger. I'm a hip and knee uh, surgeon at the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia. I didn't come up with a nice catch line, so I'll leave it at that. But I will disclose that I have no personal conflicts with the authors or any of the studies or information being discussed today. Thank you. And I'm Brian Chalmers. I'm uh, one of the hip and knee surgeons at the Hospital for Special Surgery. I'm just a small town boy trying to make it in the Big Apple. I also have no personal conflicts with the authors or any of the devices or studies discussed here today. So we're honored to be joined by uh, one of my colleagues at the Hospital for Special Surgery, Dr. Michael Ast, very good personal friend of mine and, and excellent surgeon and very well regarded. So we're happy that he could, he could join us this evening. We're going to be talking about uh, business and practice models and, and something that, that he has become a world-renowned expert in. And so it's going to be a great hour of discussion. Just as far as the background, Dr. Ass was born and raised in the tri-state area. He did his residency in the local area and then ended up doing a hip and knee replacement fellowship at the Hospital for Special Surgery and then went on to practice in a private practice model for four or five years prior to coming back to the Hospital for Special Surgery. So he has, you know, very diverse background in, in his early career and, and different practice models and, and is really the opportune person to, to speak about this. So welcome, Mike, and thanks a lot. Thanks so much. I, I mean, I really appreciate it. It's sort of an honor to be among this uh, great crew. And to clarify, to become a world expert at this kind of stuff just means you've made so many mistakes along the way, you've had to figure out how to undo them all. So it's actually a lot like surgery. Perfect. We'll try to learn from your mistakes. That's always the goal. And that's kind of how it all started, right? It was enough people make enough mistakes and feel bad for everyone else making mistakes. So we try to pass it along. We certainly appreciate you being here. And I, you know, I think one of the things that I think a lot of younger surgeons in particular have a hard time figuring out is the different practice models. You know, we commonly hear them delineated as private practice versus academic practice. I think in many instances now, they're a bit more mixed where some private practices, you're still an employed physician. Some academic centers, you're just an employed physician. I feel like more and more people are just becoming employed physicians. So with, with that said, are, are you able to kind of discuss some of the main differences between you know, academic hospital employed and private practice models that you've been a part of and, and kind of you know, maybe some information you wish you'd have thought of or learned earlier in your careers, you were determining, you know, what worked best for you and you were looking for? Yeah, you know, I think that the problem nowadays, or one of them is that there, it's not so crystal clear anymore. To your point, it used to be, are you joining a hospital as an academic practice? Or are you going into a traditional private practice? That was kind of it. Those are the two options. Now between these mega groups that have different partnership tracks, these whatever the word private-demic means, and Chad, you're in a private-demic model, I'm in a private demic model. They couldn't be any more. I have no idea what it means. Right. And they couldn't be any more different than each other. Like the word is completely meaningless. Then there are academic models, which look a lot like employed models, except maybe you get time for research, but you don't actually usually get time for research. You still only get paid for doing cases. So the whole thing's a little complicated. The way I try to think of it is number one, 
instead of worrying about these classifications, it's like we love classifications because that we think they make them simpler, but in this case, they make them more complicated. Who's paying you? How are you getting paid? What determines how much that is? And are there is there any other way you're going to make money? Right. This is how these models should be evaluated. So, for instance, Chad, back to your point, right? You can be an employed physician where you're employed by a hospital and you get a paycheck from the hospital. You could also be an employee of a private practice where you simply get paid by the private practice. So it's less important as to like who the boss is and more important to, okay, do I have a base salary? What is that base salary? How much money am I taking home every two weeks after taxes? Because that helps you start to think, okay, can I afford to live in New York City? Can I afford to buy a house in Ambler? Can I afford to live in Seattle? Whatever it is. And then can I make extra if I work harder, if I take call, if I you know, do trauma cases, if I pick up extra, whatever, like, what are my other options? And then will I ever have access to something like ancillary revenue? You know, we talk about uh, ambulatory surgery centers, physical therapy, DME, all this stuff. Like, am I going to have access to that? Because some private models have that and don't. Some employed models have that and don't. And so uh, I, I think that one of the issues is kind of breaking down that if you're either private or you're employed and, and there's sort of nothing in the middle and understand, especially now, as we start to see more interesting relationships like private equity involved practices or insurance companies buying practices, all of these, like trying to break these into, into neat little squares doesn't actually work all that well. I would agree with you completely in that point. And I think that's one of the hardest things I have talking to residents about is, you know, everything's kind of a mishmash. There is no pure practice of any type, I feel like anymore. I do think the hard part is figuring out kind of where do you want your apex to be? Because no matter where you start, you're going to be the bottom person, right? And, and going to have to work your way up through the ranks. And if there's an, an employed model, then there should be a path forward for you in terms of how that can grow. If you're a private, there should be a path forward in terms of how that can grow and everything in between. So again, that's my own personal thing. I feel like everyone's kind of coming to the middle, but I would echo everything you said there, Mike. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, there's the, the other hard thing is it's really hard to evaluate a job. Like it's really hard to get to know an opportunity by reading the ad on the academy's job board and then calling one person. So one of the most important people, there's two groups of people I think you should talk to before you take any job at all. The first are the young people in that practice. And if like six of them have left in the last three years, whether it's a employed job or a private practice, turn and run, right? There's your red flag right there. If they're churning and burning through young surgeons, you, you don't want to be there. The other interesting group of people to speak to are the reps in the area right? To learn the reputation of the practice, to learn whether or not the younger surgeons seem happy or unhappy, how hard of a time do they have getting busy, things like that. You can learn just a lot about the sort of way each practice runs by saying, hey, I've never heard of this, of Hospital X. I really want to be in Kansas. Like I, that, that's where I want to be, but I don't know much about the hospitals there. And, you know, it's because my wife or my husband's family is from there. And so I want to go, but I don't know anything. Talk to the reps. And usually, especially if you're in fellowship um, or in residency, you've got access to reps from every company. They can find out, hey, find me the reps from this local area. And that gives you an opportunity to kind of talk to people who are somewhat unbiased, want you to be there, but don't really care which practice you join. So they can give you really good information.
I think Mike, you know, I agree. It seems like a lot of the practice models are really kind of merging into one. And I think, you know, that almost makes it even more challenging for residents and fellows looking for a job of like, you know, is this a private model? Is this an academic model? Is this a hospital employed model? Who I would say, as far as the questions that I always get, what is the best timing for a resident or fellow to be looking at a job? I always get questions about from fourth year residents kind of worried that they don't have a job yet or aren't looking yet. And so that's one. And then two, you know, what's the best resources to like, I know you said talking to the young people, talking to the reps, but even before that and identifying jobs that are out there, is it word of mouth? Is it AOS posts? Is it kind of your mentors or kind of, can you speak on that? Not only timing, but also where to even find these opportunities. Yeah. So, so we'll start with timing. So it's interesting. I actually think that you should start way earlier than you know anything about what you're looking for. And the reason is none of us have any idea how to apply for a job. Right? The vast majority of us are like me and, and, and I know Brian, like high school, just getting to college, college, just getting to med school, med school, beg and plead and pray that you can get into a residency. And how do you get into residency? You walk into that room and say what you think they want you to say. It's an academic residency. All I want to do is research. I'm going to do research and academics. You go into the private practice, the one that's a sort of community one. I just want to operate. I want to be a good surgeon, take good care of people, right? We don't know how to interview. We just know how to try to please the person on the other side of the table. And that, and the same thing happens in fellowship. So we have no experience in actually even knowing what to ask to find out if you might like or not like a job. So I think it's very helpful to start interviewing really early on only to get experience, not even in necessarily jobs you plan on taking. Now, you don't want to be disingenuous. You don't want to go out there and just waste a bunch of people's time. But if you're trying to just get to know an area, feel free to do a couple of interviews, maybe as a late four, that's a bit early, but even in your chief year, do some interviews. That being said, unless there's only one place you're willing to go and you've got to be at this practice in this place, don't sign a contract till you're a fellow. And the reason is you are more valuable as a fellow than you are as a fifth year resident, because as a chief, you might do your fellowship. You might not. Now I know we all sign a contract, but many of us know people who backed out of a fellowship for one reason or another, right? For life reasons, family reasons, there was some reason they backed out of fellowship. They went right into practice. So that practice is never going to value you the same until you're in your fellowship. So you ideally like to have a signed job contract or at least a contract that you are negotiating by academy of your fellow year. I think that's kind of a timing a lot of us believe in and stick to and think is reasonable. But I do think you should actually start looking around early and the more specific you are on either practice location or practice type, meaning you truly do only want to join a true academic faculty where you're going to teach residents and fellows and have protected time for research, or you're geographically very located. I need to be on Staten Island, New York, because that's where I'm from. And I want to go live back home with my parents when I'm in practice. Then you have to start looking really early. Otherwise, don't be in a rush. There's plenty of places. Now, how do you find the job? I think it's all of the things you said, Brian. I think the Academy Job Board is a useful uh, way to understand what's out there. You Speaking to reps, if you've got a location you like, I really want to go back to the Midwest. I want to go to the Pacific Northwest, whatever it is. I really want to be there, what's available. But it all, like many other things, and we this has been talked about on this podcast before, like mentorship is so important. And so having a mentor, having someone you can talk to who's got connections, who's got people, who's got a network can really help. And if you're in a fellowship, 
the fellowships got a network, right? Every one of these fellowships have graduate fellows, have people they know. The six degrees of separation in orthopedics doesn't get you to six. There's only about one and a half degrees of separation of every single person in the world of orthopedics. And so I think the web is easy to work through if you have good mentors. So let's back up a second, Mike. So say, you know, I, I know I want to live in a certain location or I know a certain t- practice type I want to be a part of, and I'm you know, interested in a, a job there. How do I, as a younger surgeon or resident or fellow, know what my leverage is, right? Like you said, we mostly just begged to get to the positions that we got into, you know, throughout life to this point, right? And certainly, you know, work some jobs here and there. But when it comes to actually, finally, you have a choice, right? And it's very overwhelming initially. And then the places that you may want to go, they may not have really openings. And it's like, well, should I just take whatever they offer me? Because this is definitely where I want to be. Or do I actually have leverage in this situation? How do you, how do you, you know, mentor or educate folks on like walking that line where you aren't working for $15 an hour for the rest of your life, but you're also not giving away an opportunity because it's such a good opportunity for you? Yeah, I think this is really where you talk to other people and you can talk to people at your level. I know, you know, our fellowship class, we had eight fellows and we would took our contracts and just put them on the table like, hey, does this seem reasonable? And, you know, talk to mentors, talk to young faculty at your fellowship and say, hey, what should I be making? What is my leverage? What is normal? And I do think it's helpful. You got to have a lawyer look at these contracts because a lot of them have experience and know what people are getting around the country. This sounds a bit self-serving and you all started with your lack of conflicts of interest. I have, I have a big conflict of interest here because my wife is an attorney who specializes in orthopedic contracts, but that also has given me an opportunity to see contracts from all over the country. And I think there is a lot of variability and some of it is region specific, but there is still a value. We have a certain value. We know how much work we can do. And as long as you have a general understanding of the market, someone, a mentor, a friend, a colleague or an attorney should be able to give you the information you need to understand your value and make sure you're not being taken advantage of. And back to what we talked about earlier, the more complicated these arrangements get, the more sort of circuitous and difficult to understand these arrangements are, the more important it is to have somebody who knows what they're doing look through that contract. It is very, very easy to sign a bad contract. And when we started our foundation, right, the Foundation for Physician Advancement was started by several of the AUKUS leadership right? This is a nonprofit foundation dedicated to teaching residents and fellows and young attendings this stuff, how to figure this stuff out. You know, you talk to Michael Menaghini, Brian Springer, Bolo, Antonia, former YAG chair, Brian Culp. And it's literally just a series of terrible events of things that led us to want to do this, of bad contracts we signed, things we didn't understand what we were doing, getting ourselves into situations we really didn't recognize. And so having learning about it, listening about it, reading about it, but then having people who have more experience take a look and talk you through it is just super, super important. I applaud that initiative. There's future dates that people want to look at that as well on the, you guys travel around and talk. So if anyone's interested, they can find that on the website too. So Mike, a quick question. Besides for just bad contracts, do you have any advice on evaluating the financials of a potential practice? Because even if it's a good contract, financial of the practice might not be ideal. Any red flags that we should be looking for in these financials? And a lot of this is going to be Greek to us just because we don't know what to look for in financials. Is that something that is super important? Is that something that you should have maybe a financial person look at? 
Yeah, it, that's a great question. And the really hard part about that is sometimes you don't really have great access to the financials. Many practices, especially private practices, are not just going to open up all their books to every single person that interviews there and say, hey, here's our financials for the last 15 years. Go hire a forensic accountant to figure it out. But there are some red flags. Like I said earlier, one of the big ones is a lot of people leaving recently. Now, one person leaving for one reason or another, not such a big deal. Things don't always work out and that's okay. But if it's a pattern of that, that's going to be a red flag. If you go and visit and you see that the younger surgeons are struggling to get busy, they're standing around a lot, they, they make comments to you that you can sort of tell they're either not that happy that they're bringing someone else in or they're sort of just not very busy. I think that's a big red flag to look for as well. And again, this is where asking some outside knowledge can be very helpful. And whether it's a mentor or mentee in a local practice nearby, the reps or vendor partners at some of the local hospitals, they usually hear a lot of the gossip going around about it. And if a practice is financially struggling, they're going to know about it. You can, however, and I did with my first private practice, I did ask, I said, hey, how much money does everyone make? How often, like what kind of debt does the practice have? And especially if you are joining a more traditional private practice, one that is set up like a couple of years as an employee, then some buy-in to a partnership model, you should at least be able to ask, what are the terms of the partnership model? How much is the buy-in? And what does that buy-in get you? Right? It's very interesting. Traditionally, if you go back 15 or 20 years, buy-ins bought you this thing called goodwill, the concept that you were sort of buying the success of the practice because the two people you were taking over for were going to pass you all their pass you all their patients eventually and their their reputation the community was going to help you get busy now that practices are large that's not even a thing anymore goodwill is actually just an accounting term for how much more you paid for something than it was actually worth so if they're telling you that the buy-in for the practice is 50 million dollars what you're getting for it is 20 grand worth of furniture and the other 49 million is just because of how awesome they are, walk away. Like that's, it's worth nothing to you. So understanding that when there is that buy-in to a practice, what you're really getting for it, is it a nice way to understand how they value their practice and what actually comes with your entering into that partnership? Yeah, I think that's an important point. And I think it's hard to, Mike, in the current standpoint, there's a lot of venture capital, which you mentioned earlier to understand kind of like what the lead-in is there. Is, is there anything, you know, everyone hears rumors about venture capital, I think, buying every practice that currently exists right now within uh, the United States. Any insight as to, you know, what questions you can ask outside of saying, hey, you know, I, I heard rumors that venture capital may be getting involved here. How can I protect myself? Like, how does someone go about having that conversation if they're looking? It's fascinating because, you know, five years ago, this wasn't a thing. Like, this wasn't a conversation anyone was having. And the only people who might beat private equity from buying all the practices are the insurance companies or Amazon. So we'll see what happens. But I think number one, in most cases, and lately in the ones that I've seen, the practice will usually disclose to you if they're at least having a conversation with them, because they don't actually want you to just like get there and freak out and walk away because that's not great for their private equity deal too. The problem is a lot of these private equity deals are very unclear as to what they're going to look for for the most junior of partners. So number one, you do want to at least ask, hey, if this is a private practice that is wholly owned and can be sold partly or totally into one of these private equity deals, is that going on? Are you having that conversation? 
Is this something that you're entertaining? And if so, any idea how it would affect me? They might tell you, they might not, but they're probably not going to lie to you if they're at least having the conversation. And then secondarily, if you get a chance to speak to some of the junior partners who may not be privy to all the details of it, ask if they've had any conversations about what they would do if the private equity deal didn't look good for them. Many contracts that you sign on your first contract will accept a clause that says, if I join this practice and the practice is sold to a private equity or secondary entity that is not in a deal that's favorable for me, I can leave with no restrictive covenant. Meaning I don't have to move out of the state or move somewhere else once I've got my kids in school and once I've got thing, just because you made a deal that was bad for me, that wasn't the deal when I signed this contract, right? And it's actually been something that people, it's just, you know, you don't want, nobody wants to screw their junior partners. Nobody wants to put people, well, in a bad, <laughs> the vast majority, most people don't want to do something that negatively impacts their junior partners. And I think most orthopedic surgeons are generally good people. And so at least saying, look, I want as the junior surgeon coming in, I know the business has to do what it has to do, but I want to know that I'm going to be protected if it's not good for me and have a way that I can at least walk away. And everyone is sort of like, okay. Uh, that's a fantastic answer. So thank you for that. Because I, I think a lot of us struggle with you know, asking that question and figuring out how to frame it in a way that allows our employers to know, you know, we're, we're thinking about this, we're a little concerned, you know, what are you thinking about for us? So thank you, Mike. And, and I think it goes back to before, a lot of us are bad at asking any questions at all, right? We're afraid to upset the person on the other side of the table. Now they won't take us in their residency anymore. You know what I mean? Like it is, it is amazing how bad we are at advocating for ourselves and we're bad at it in our practices, but we're bad at it in our hospitals and we're bad at it in the healthcare system in general, right? We're just not very good at advocating for ourselves. And we're very, our imposter syndrome comes out like crazy when we try to leverage anything. When we try to say that we are good, we start being afraid that we're wrong. And so we don't ask the question. We're afraid, well, what if I ask them and they don't like it, but they're interviewing somebody else who didn't ask that question. So they think they're right. You got to cut that nonsense out. This is why you have to practice interviewing. This is why it's a skill like everything else that we learned that can be practiced and you can get better at it. Ask every question. Ask everybody, why are you hiring me? Why do you even want me? How am I going to get busy? What is your plan to allow me to get busy and build my practice? You need to be upfront and say, look, I'm going to hustle. I want to work to build my practice, but I expect that there is at least going to be enough resources that I can do it. I get enough time in the office, support, our time if that's a challenge in this particular location, right? You need to be supported. And if they can't answer it, maybe that's the red flag Mark was talking about, right? They should want to bring people in. The worst interview experience I ever had, this was awesome. I walk into this very cool practice, a totally different model. I was really excited about it. And I walk in and I meet the business people and they're great. Oh yeah, we're going to run the world soon. This is going to be amazing, blah, blah. And I sit down with the joint replacement surgeon. So I'm sitting across the table from them, really excited. I say, hey, so why do you want another joint surgeon? And he's like, I don't know. I don't think we need another joint surgeon. I'm like, what? Yep. I'm like, I took the day off from fellowship. I traveled all the way out here. I just got all excited about those people. And right, like, but if I didn't ask, who knows, right? I joined yep. that practice and fail immediately, right? Not because the practice wasn't good, but because the support wasn't there. And to be honest, I'm so thankful he gave an honest answer, right? That honest answer saved me from taking a job that wouldn't have worked out. So you've got to ask the questions. You've got to be willing to ask it. And if you think you made the person on the other side of the table uncomfortable, too bad. Mike asked interview coach. You know, That's I'm right. LLC. Yes. I'm excited. Let's do this. 
Yeah, I think on that somewhat topic, I think another question that we had that we wanted to go over was, you know, I think there's been a growing trend of orthoplasty surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in general changing or leaving practices within the first five years. And that didn't seem to happen that often 20 years ago, but seems like it's, you know, we all know many people who have changed practices within the first five years. And, you know, I think, can you speak on that a little bit? And one, why do you think that is? And maybe that's some of the reasons that we've been talking about, you know, two, is that necessarily a bad thing or how can we avoid that in the future and advocating for ourselves and looking for the right job? Yeah, you know, it is amazing how sticky that statistic is, right? 50% of surgeons leave their practice in the first five years. And everyone's like, nah, that's not true. There's no, that's an overblown. Eight fellows in my fellowship class, four of us have new jobs in the first five years. It was exactly 50%, right? Now, first thing I think, Brian, is you hit on something important. It's not always a bad thing, right? I left a good job for a great job. I loved my first practice. I loved everything about it. I still talk to them now. I love my new job, right? So like I left for a good reason. Dennis Nan, same thing left a good job where he was very happy for a different job that was very happy just in a location he was looking for, right? So a lot of these aren't bad changes. Some of them are. One of our other colleagues was in a really bad situation. The practice was just going downhill. He took an employed opportunity and everything about the support that he required wasn't there. And he eventually left, right? So you have to understand it's a bit more nuanced than who left, who didn't left, but it's real. And I think the reasons are sometimes just good opportunities come up and that's great. A lot of times it's because you got into a deal you didn't recognize or didn't know. And unfortunately, if you listen to the story that some of my colleagues have told, it's because you didn't pay attention to the details because you really thought you trusted the person you got involved in, either as a mentor or a colleague or someone you knew earlier, or you're the surgeon you grew up with that they were your doctor and you're going to take over their practice. And then all of a sudden you get there and you realize the financials don't look anything like it. You're not getting the support that you need. And you sort of need to be a little wary because there's a lot of these well-known practices that quote, no one ever leaves. But then you ask around and actually a bunch of people have left. Like, Like people do leave, right? So always sort of be willing to do your homework there. But I also don't think that, again, this comes down to a little bit of the problem with surgeons and business. Business is about making mistakes, learning from mistakes, and being better afterwards, right? Most entrepreneurs tell you about the six companies that failed before the one that hit it off. In surgery, you don't get that option. One failure is a patient who's hurt. In medicine, one failure is someone who died. So we are super uncomfortable with the concept of failure. So we look at the statistic as a failure, and it's got to be a bad thing. Sometimes what happens is you learn your lesson the first time and you do a better job the second time. You love your second job. Sometimes you leave that job too. We've got colleagues and friends that are on job number what? Three, four, five. Sometimes they're better. Sometimes they're worse. Sometimes they're having a hard time figuring out what really matters to them. And I think that's what's helpful about getting to know yourself a little early and looking in the mirror and being willing to say, I know I spent all of my residency applications and residency interviews and fellowship applications and fellowship interviews saying I wanted to do X. But honestly, I want to do why. I don't want to teach. I don't want to do research. I want to show up at nine. I want to leave at 4.30 and I want to do 14 carpal tunnels a day. And that's it. And you know what? That doesn't make you an evil human being. And many of us get that feeling like thinking's like that, that I want to go home and see my kids means that you're not a dedicated enough doctor. It's not true. Some people like teaching. Some people don't. Some people like doing a lot of cases. Some people would rather do a hundred joint replacements a year and a ton of research 
and a ton of traveling and great. Everyone should do what makes them happy inside, but you got to look in the mirror first and figure out what that is. And if you take jobs based on what you think you're supposed to love instead of what you actually love, you end up on job number four. Yeah. And I, and I think too, it, it, like everything's so complex now, right? Like I, I can't think of a simple model when it comes to things and you think you understand things and then they start having other discussions. Once you join, you have no idea what the future will actually hold. And, you know, there's just a lot of change right now within health policy realms that I think is affecting all of us. So I, I agree that, you know, 50% of people leaving isn't a failure at all. I think that number is probably going to grow higher as, as things continue to shift here. But it is a challenge. I'm still stuck on the nine o'clock start time, Mike. That, that seems super late to me. So I, I would not be able to tolerate that at all in, uh, in any job I'd be looking at. And, but, but now you know, right? Now you know you've thought about it. And you're comfortable saying that if you start your hours at 9 a.m., I need to find a different job. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, but I'll tell you, you know what's funny? I start my office days at 9 a.m. And you know why? Because I put my kids on the bus those days. Yeah. Right? That, I like do, that, I do as well. That's how I achieve my work-life balance. I start my office days a little late. I end them a little early. My OR days are my OR days to live and breathe in that hospital for 20 hours. But you've got to figure it out. And you figure out your balance as you go. Right? There's no perfect formula. There's no perfect thing for you. Some people don't have children and really want to get on the road before traffic and they want to start at 7.30 in the morning, but they want to finish at 2 because they can play nine holes before the sun goes down, right? 6.30, Mike. 6.30 starts. Let's go. Right? But that's the point, right? You figure this out along the way and you don't need to know it all in the beginning. And the more we talk about it, you know, the other thing that, I, that we've realized over the last couple of years, and again, I'm not trying to tout, uh, tout what we do with our foundation, but one of the things that's been amazing about it is you put Bolo and Springer and Menigini and Neil Sheth and Antonia Chen and Brian Culp on a podium and you just let them talk for a while. And I learn more than anybody else in that audience every time. And we do these things four times a year for the last five years. And it's every time, right? When you just have this conversation among people and talk openly and honestly about these experiences, all of a sudden it matters. Our problem in medicine is that for so long, business was looked at as a dirty word, right? As something not to be discussed. How much money do I make? How much does this cost? What is the patient going to have to pay? Does this matter, right? And the health system fell apart because we were unwilling to say the word business. And guess what? It isn't gone today. I was applying for my professorship role at our institution, uh, not our institution, the one next door, and was reminded that I should not have things about business on my CV as that's not appropriate for an academic institution, right? It is still a problem we have in medicine that we don't talk about this stuff enough. The more we have these conversations, the more, Chad, you tell your story of your practice and the goods and the bads about that model. And Mark, you tell your story about the goods and the bads of that model. And Brian, you tell your story about how great and wonderful and amazing it is where you work and you would never complain in a million years about how awesome it was. That's how we all learn. That's how we get better. And that's how we stop the next set of problems from happening before they happen because we don't let little things creep in that shouldn't. You know, I think along those lines and talking about the complexity of practices and kind of unknowns and, and you know, not necessarily wanting to be hyper involved in the business side. And that's kind of a traditional model. Do you think that's a little bit driving a lot of younger surgeons, you know, wanting to become just hospital employed? Here's my paycheck. Here's my, you know, four to six weeks off. You know, is that becoming more of a desire or what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, the statistics would support that more than 50% of graduating fellows go into employed models and some type of hospital employed, whether it's academic or non-academic hospital employee model. That being said, I think that trend will start to turn. And I think you're starting to see more and more physicians in general recognizing the value of understanding the business. And when they do, starting to be less satisfied with those jobs because they are amazing for lack of administrative burden, right? That's what I always say. If you take a job as a hospital employee, you show up to work, you do your job, you go home. And there is something really, really nice about that. And many young surgeons today and not so young surgeons today, right? Many surgeons on in every stage of their career are choosing that to free themselves of the burdens of trying to understand the business of the healthcare system. That being said, we also have a whole lot of young surgeons, residents, fellows, and young attendings with MBAs, with interest in healthcare policy. People like the folks on this call right now who are interested in learning and want to know. And I imagine that their future actually looks more back into the private practice realm. Now, whether it looks like the private practice, I joined 21 surgeons and four offices and a location, or whether it looks like Chad's private practice with 120 surgeons, or whether it looks like some of these super mega groups with 300 surgeons, or whether it looks like a third-party capital-invested nationwide group, that remains less clear. And I think we're going to see all of those things happen. But I, I don't know exactly where we're going to end. And I don't necessarily think we're going to continue seeing more employees. We may actually start to see that crest at some point and go in the other direction if we can convince enough people that the right way to fix healthcare is to put more physicians in leadership positions. Because I truly, truly believe that. Uh, and I'll disagree with you there, Mike. I think we're going to see more and more employed because I'm worried about all the venture capital funds that are going in. And someone's going to be like, well, I can join this practice and get, you know, a cut off the top that's going to someone else who's already made their money, right? The venture capital firm and the, the true private practice jobs where, you know, you earn what you earn, what you make are, are going to continue to go away and become less and less. And everything to me, at my vantage point, looks more and more like an employed model as things progress where, you know, you have set goals and you make them and, and, and you're done. Whether that's right or wrong, I have no idea. But I do agree with your point that we do need more leaders in the healthcare field. I'm personally very curious how things set up. But I, I think your point is right in that people might be employed in these third-party capital invested practice options, but that doesn't mean you're an employee, right? Remember, they still earn money based on their own collections. And especially in a lot of the models in orthopedics, the desire of these organizations is to have physician leadership and physician involvement in the decisions that are made in the practice growth models. So they are not like traditional hospital employed models where come in, make your money, go home, where it's easier for them to fire you than it is to fire your secretary, right? Some of these PE backed or insurance company backed practices will probably resemble much more of a very complicated private practice than they really will present a sort of true employed thing. But to your other point, I do think that, you know, this group is a phenomenal group for doing this. AUKUS is phenomenal for doing this. Promoting physician leadership is super critical for the future of healthcare, right? And I was so excited when I saw the announcement, Chad, it's your healthcare system, right? Jefferson Healthcare System put another physician in charge, 
right? One of the most successful healthcare systems was run by a physician for a long time. Classico did an unbelievable job. And when he left, everyone was a little curious as to whether or not they'd stick with that. And bringing in another physician leader, I think is super critical for the best healthcare systems moving forward. And I think, you know, everything from how you pick a job to how you interview to how you understand your practice to Mark's point on trying to make the financials not look like just absolute gibberish to us to trying to break down and figure out how to run a practice, grow a practice, build a practice can be translated now to run a department, run a healthcare system, run healthcare in general. And so the more physicians that are willing to take that line, like Cynthia Emery, another one of our colleagues through FPA, who's the chair of pediatrics at Wake Forest, while also being the associate chair of orthopedics and the chair of surgery and figuring out the way to work her way up that ladder so that we keep physicians in the leadership roles become super, super critical sort of for those of us who still have 30, 40 years left to practice. Well said. And I do agree. I, I think the practice models are going to change drastically and I, I am excited to see how that works. So I think that's a great point about employed versus non-employed, uh, just different titles. So I was trying to put things in a nice, neat box like you told me not to earlier in the uh, podcast there, Mike. <laughs> well, you know, it's like all our big surgeons, it takes a couple times. We'll figure it out eventually. Mike, do you see any difference in contracts just as the dynamic of the different generations go through? Like baby boomers wanted one thing out of their occupation. Millennials wanted something else. Uh, Gen X wanted something else. Do you see hospitals changing the uh, way that they structure contracts to, I guess, woo millennials who favor, uh, you know, mobility, who want, you know, more work-life balance? Do you see that coming into that at all? Or do you think that in orthopedics, we're a little bit immune from that? Yeah, I don't think anybody's immune from that, right? I think people, generations always have different work ethics. And this just goes far before the baby boomers and isn't going to stop at whatever we're calling the current generation. And I do think you'll notice differences. But at the same time, you don't want to get sort of what I always tell people is don't read the parts of the contract you're interested in. Don't read the salary. Don't go to the parts that matter, that need to be fixed. And one of the biggest changes I've seen in the last 10 or 15 years in contracts is the intellectual property stuff. And this is where many of us have gotten ourselves in trouble in the past. Really understand what the intellectual property things look like in your, your contract, in your work environment, in your practice, because we all have the potential to come up with something great. And we want to make sure we protect our ideas as our ideas. And this is whether you're doing a, an employment contract or a consulting contract, get and understand that. And then if these are things you like to do and whether what you like to do on the side is work-life balance, because I really like to golf or work-life balance because I like to teach or work-life balance because I like to work with industry and develop things, that breakdown is the stuff I think that's changing, Mark, to your point. Like nowadays you're seeing more saying, okay, you're going to work and you're going to do hip and knee replacements at our hospital, but you can't do anything else. Or you have to do it 50 hours a week or whatever. And you just need to be comfortable with whatever that is and understand what are the other things you want to do. And again, not judgmental about what they are. It really doesn't matter what they are. If it's something you want to do that isn't hip and knee replacements, nowadays, you probably want to work that in early, mention it early. I like to do rural medicine trips. I like to travel and do missions. Great. I think that's wonderful. And whomever you're working with should support that. But you're starting to see that stuff need to be carved out now so that you don't get told, hey, you're not doing your job enough. I think that's a great point. I think, uh, you know, we have five or 10 more minutes. Just wanted to touch on, you know, another very important topic for, you know, that a lot of us don't understand while we're looking for jobs and, and in private and academic practices alike. Obviously, there's 
oftentimes opportunities for ancillary investments, um, whether that's TME companies, you know, surgery centers, buying into the practice, kind of like you alluded to earlier. Can you talk about some of the ancillary incomes and other investment opportunities early on and what the different types are and kind of go through that and, and what early surgeons should be aware of when, when looking at and evaluating whether those are good investments? Yeah, you know, ancillary revenue, first of all, ancillary income, right, is anything, any mailbox money, right? Any money you made while you weren't actually doing something. And many, especially private practices, that's really a huge percentage of their income. And in many cases, one of the reasons people like joining private practices is the access to ancillary revenue. Some ancillary revenue is going to be sort of part of the practice. So things like DME, physical therapy, imaging, these tend to be wrapped within the practice. And there's regulatory reasons why that is. So usually if you are a partner in the practice and you buy into the practice enough, you know, for the value of those services, you get the income for those services on the other side. Things like ambulatory surgery centers are a little bit different and the regulations around ambulatory surgery centers are very different. So they just need to be understood and followed. We did a symposium last year, AUKUS, about this, um, just to kind of go through some of this because it can be a little complicated. But the simple thing is, Understand if there is an ambulatory surgery center, understand if you're allowed to buy in, and then understand what the regulations are about it. You have to do a certain number of cases there. You have to do the right kind of cases there. And remember that just because you're the new joint surgeon building a joint practice there, while everything else there is sports in hand, meaning your surgeries are generating way more money for the center, everyone still gets the same amount. Everyone has to split that pie evenly. You can't make more money from that center just because you're driving more revenue. That's absolutely legal and cannot be done. And something really, really important for surgeons to understand. There are other ways to make ancillary revenue as well. And even in employed models, there are ways to do it. Things like gain sharing programs, things like bundled payments. Some of these allow for money to come back to surgeons, even if these surgeons are hospital employees. And so I think... Again, this is a great opportunity to really talk to the people in the practice. Hey, what are some of your ancillary revenues? What are you thinking of doing? Do you have a surgery center? If you're in an employed model, do you have a gain sharing program? And what does that look like? You know, some gain sharing programs can give you back 30, 50, $100,000 a year. They're not small if leveraged correctly. And so these are things that can be open even to uh, employed physicians. And don't forget, employed physicians can own surgery centers. It's complicated. Hospitals don't like to share, but you're seeing it more and more now as they're competing with private practices for the best surgeons, because the best surgeons want to go to private practice so they can own an ambulatory surgery center. Okay. And just ballpark for buying in on the private practice. Typical buy-in. Do you know, is it all over the board? What should the people applying to jobs be looking for as a reasonable buy-in? Yeah. So actually the answer is it's all over the board. They can be everything from $40,000 to 1.3 million. I think what you need to know is what we talked about earlier. It doesn't matter how much the buy-in is. What matters is what you get for that buy-in. So if that buy-in buys you 300 physical therapy locations and you know ancillary revenue that's bringing in seven figures a year, yeah, great, then it's totally worth it. But if you're paying $400,000 for a bunch of old desks and chairs, probably not worth it. So I think it's really about what you get for it. And then it can be helpful to understand what options there are to pay it off, right? Is this a buy-in? Do you have to go find a loan and take it to buy-in, which may be totally worth it. I know so many of us are debt averse after college and med school. Many of you are a lot like me, right? I finished medical school with $300,000 in loans. The last thing I ever wanted ever in my whole life was more debt, but sometimes it's worth taking on some debt for your surgery center, for your practice buy-in. But And a lot of practices will have something set up where they've got a bank 
that they do all their business with anyway, that have buy-in loans, that have things already set up for you at favorable interest rates, sort of pretty minimal work on your end to get the loan, and you pay the loan off over a couple of years. The other way you do see practice buy-ins is they say, look, the practice buy-in is $400,000. So we're just going to take $50,000 a year right off the top from you for the next eight years. It's actually a really nice way to do it, right? You never have to think about it. You never have to worry about it. It's essentially like taking a loan from the practice, which you can do for the buy-in, but you cannot do for a surgery center. Again, the regulations are different. But those are simple, easy, and you know, back to like not wanting to think too much about the financials. You don't have to think about it. You just know that for the next couple of years, you're going to make 50000 less than everybody else, and then you'll be all paid off and you don't have to write a check. So all of these things are fine, but you want to find out what am I getting and what is the mechanism by which I'm going to pay it. Um, and then the other types of investments that are available that come to us that people don't really think about are things like real estate, right? This is usually a completely separate thing, but mild practice, we owned all the buildings where we practiced, right? We owned the building, we paid ourselves rent. That changes the tax class of the money we were getting. And it's very common. That's how you know, Target and Walmart and CVS do it too. That's how big corporations do a lot of their work. And so there might be opportunities for that as well. So ask, ask the partners, do you guys own, do, does this practice own real estate? Does this practice own other things? If so, am I going to have an opportunity to buy into those things? You know, whatever that happens to be, that's what you need to ask about. And then again, ask, what am I getting for it? Is there a mechanism to pay for it? And Brian, you asked earlier, like, how do you know if it's a good investment? I always say a good investment is an investment you can pay off in three years. If in three or four years, you can pay off the entire investment, it was worth it. If it's going to take you 20 years to pay it off, it might not be worth it. So I think that's a very, very oversimplified way of doing it. The best way to do is evaluate the pro forma, match it against other things in the same industry, and do a bunch of things that Mark, again, is going to refer to as gibberish. But the easy, simple, straightforward way to do it, if it's going to take me more than five years to pay off the, the loan it took me to buy in, I'm going to think about it. If it's less than four years, I'm going to do it. If it's more than 10 years, I'm not going to do it. This has been excellent, Mike. I appreciate you simplifying everything for us, just trying to learn a little bit more about the, the topic. It's hard to digest and you, you present it in a way that's pretty easy to understand. So thank you. As a plug for AUKUS, any listener can go onto the AUKUS website, watch the symposium that you referenced earlier regarding the ASCs and so forth online free of charge. And then I encourage us all to do it. We all need to under, not that I want people to listen to me. I'm actually super embarrassed anytime anybody listens to me, but we all need to educate ourselves enough to be part of the conversation. Right. So the more we can educate ourselves, whether it's on the business side, whether it's on the regulatory side, whether it's on the legal side, the more we can do this, the better equipped we all are to lead the conversation. Yeah, it's been great. I think, you know, like you said earlier, not a lot of us are knowledgeable about this and, and advocating for ourselves and, and asking questions and asking, you know, trying to find out information uh, is, is really key in, in this. And, and so we thank you a lot for joining us. And it's been a great, great hour. Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure. I'm super humbled to be able to be on this. Like all of the people you've had on here recently were so much more important than me. And I got, so I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe yeah, they're we, we ran through the list, Mike. Your name was at the bottom. So you know, <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time. That, that does actually make me feel better. All right. Well, that wraps everything up for us this evening. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael Ass, for joining us. Everyone, please review us and give us five stars, or as I like to call it, a five millimeter augment. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.